Well, I'll turn again this morning, if you would, to uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And I'll be reading uh, verses 3 and 4 in your hearing this morning. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And again, shall we pray? Lord, thank you for the time of worship. I thank you for the privilege of opening your word uh, in the assembly of the saints this morning and would pray this again. I would pray for the the working uh, of your holy, holy spirit uh, during um, these moments together. Uh, I pray that you would um, give me clarity of thought. I pray that you would uh, work in the souls of each one that is here, that you would uh, use your holy word to not only uh, instruct their minds, but to deepen their own love for the person of Christ, the great exalted redeemer at your right hand and so i would pray as well if there are are any here this morning that are strangers in their heart of hearts they are they're strangers to the saving grace that is found alone in christ that you might be pleased to use your word and the the working of your holy spirit to impress upon them the reality that they are a sinner but the reality that we have a great and glorious Savior of sinners in Christ, and we thank you for that. We are all simply sinners that are saved by grace. We thank you for these holy realities. So we ask that you would continue to minister to our hearts and to our souls during this time together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have considered the first uh, three verses of the first chapter of Hebrews in our I have noted the particular focus of verses 1 through 4. It's God's final word in His Son. And my initial thought as I began study earlier in the week, I wanted to gain some traction and get into uh, verses 5 through 14, but it just didn't work out that way. Um, So I I got stuck, so to speak, in in, in verse 4. And I hope that will be uh, an assistance uh, of an assistance to your thinking process this morning. Um, verse 4, it serves as kind of a bridge between verses 1 through 3 and, and then verses 5 through 14. Um, and we have noticed that it brings out the incomparable greatness of Christ. That is, verses 1 through 3 bring out the, the greatness of Christ. And consequently, the appropriateness that God's final word is in him. And just to, uh, to be clear, in verses 1 through 3, it identifies seven facts or realities about our Lord's greatness and the number kind of depends on, on whether you regard the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his person as one or two realities. They're complementary enough to be regarded as one. But if you regard those as two, there are seven realities in, in verses 2 and 3. Number one, he, he's appointed heir of all things. Number two, through whom he made the world. Number three, he's the radiance of his glory. Number four, the exact representation of his nature. Number five, upholds all things by the word of his power. Number six, he made purification of sins. And then number seven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, then you arrive at uh, verse four, and as I indicated, it serves as kind of a connection between verses one through three and verses five through 14. It does this in two different ways. One, 
Uh, it tells us what happened after he sat down. And the answer is, having become as much better than angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than, than they. So it has a chronological point to it. And then secondly, um, its content, its subject matter introduces to the great theme that unites verses 5 through 14, which is our Lord's superiority to angels, our Lord's superiority to angels. In fact, there are some who see that theme um, as beginning in chapter 1 and verse 5 and going all the way through the end of chapter 2, so that the theme of most of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 would be the superiority, our Lord's superiority over angels. Um, I found Peter O'Brien's layout very instructive. He indicates verses um, chapter 1, verse 5, down to the end of chapter 2, it's the position of the Son in relation to angels, the position of the Son in relation to angels, and then more specifically, verses 5 through 14, that, that's the Son's superiority over angels. And I think that captures the aim of that particular section. And in those verses, that is verses 5 through 14 of chapter 1, which our text introduces um, and we see Christ's supremacy, supremacy here. Um, and those verses bring out our Lord's supremacy by utilizing seven quotations from the Old Testament. So uh, verse 4 tells us, number one, what happened after our Lord sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then secondly, it prepares our minds for this great theme of the supremacy of Christ over angels. And just kind of one more thought here by way of introduction. You'll notice uh, the way in which the author uses these uh, quotations as you read through verse 5 through 14. Uh, he does so by a comparison and contrast. And in verse 4, it has the effect of preparing our mind for that method of presentation because for such a short verse, it's filled with comparative language. In the New American Standard Version, we have the words much, then better, and then, and more, and superior. These are all comparative terms. So it kind of prepares our minds for verses 5 through 17 in this ongoing approach or method of comparing and contrasting. Um, so this theme of the preeminence of Christ over angelic beings is already being pressed into our minds in verse 4. So consideration of this text, um, it's really an introduction to verses 5 through 14 that enlarges upon it. And so our text brings out the supremacy of Christ over angels in two closely related ways. And here I'm borrowing from the language of John Brown, which is not John Brown the abolitionist, but John Brown, a 17th century um, Scottish pastor. So number one is going to be his official superiority, and then secondly, his essential superiority. So in the first place, his official superiority over angels, the superiority of the person of Christ over angels. And we're thinking here of the words, having become much better than the angels. So having become, it's a historical reference to a particular point in time. What happened after he sat down at the, uh, after he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? Well, the answer is he became much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Um, Paul Ellingworth in, indicates this particular verb translated become suggests that the author's continuing to see the exaltation of the son as a single past event. So he ties our thinking to a particular point in time. And under the first heading, I want to advance our thinking by means of uh, two or three questions. 
Question number one is, what are angels? The Bible speaks an awful lot about them. And uh, kind of a short definition of an angel from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament is the angelos is one who brings a message. So a short definition of an angel, one who brings a message. Now, since everyone who brings us messages are not angels, we should probably say a bit more. So a broader definition would be a supernatural being created by God to serve him often functions as a messenger. A supernatural being created by God to serve him who often functions as a messenger. And to quote John Brown, there is plainly a comparison or a contrast stated between the author of Christianity and a certain class of beings denominated angels. The word which signifies messengers is most usually employed in scripture to denote an order of unembodied spiritual beings, superior in intellectual and active faculty to mankind, who are employed by God as his messengers in the administration of the government of the universe. Now, question number two. So question number one, what are angels? Question two, why is there a need to posit a superiority of angels over Christ? Why is there a need to make this point that Christ is superior to angels? I have, I have two responses here. The first one, possibly because the readers were in danger of succumbing to angel worship. That, that would be one reason. I, I, I say possibly because as I, as I read Hebrews, I don't find it as compelling as some. Now, that was an issue in, in the church at Colossae. We read in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, excuse me, abasement, and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by by his fleshly mind. Well, then in Hebrews 13, 9, it says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. So it's possible that under this rubric of varied and strange teachings, that that could include angel worship. And, and the reason I say possibly, it's kind of a rough one because some of the commentators that I like are very strong on this point, but I just didn't find it as compelling because there's no clear evidence of it in this particular letter. It could be the case. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce wrote, it may be that there was a, also a general reason for emphasizing the son's superiority to angels if the divers and strange teachings against these Hebrews are warned. That's in, in verses, verse 9 of chapter 13. Included a doctrine of angel worship such as had been introduced among the Colossian Christians. So that, that could be one reason. Secondly, and I, and I think this is more to the contextual point, um, why there's a need to bring in the superiority of Christ at this point in time, I think it would be this. As Christ was superior to prophets who were divine agents, who were agents of divine revelation, he's also superior to angels who were also agents of divine revelation. As Christ was superior to prophets who were agents of divine revelation, he is also superior to angels who were agents of divine revelations. Prophets were messengers of God's law. Angels are also uh, involved in the conveying of his word. If we approach it by means of asking a question, is there any scriptural support for angelic involvement in the conveying of God's law? The answer is yes. We see it right here in Hebrews. You'll notice in chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and then that, that's very similar to chapter 1 and verse 1, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. 
So verse 2 of chapter 2, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, chapter 1, verse 1, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. And to this we can add uh, Stephen's words, and in, in, this is part of his uh, sermon on, uh, in chapter 7 of the Acts of the Apostles. This is the, the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to them on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. And then Galatians 3.19, and this, these are just verses that, that relate to angelic involvement in the conveying of the law. Galatians 3.19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And, uh, and then if it's actually clearer, it seems to me, in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. But we read in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 1, Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All the holy ones are in thy hand, and they followed in thy steps. Everyone receives thy words. I think John Brown does a good job in kind of summarizing the material. He writes, the introduction of this topic is an illustration of the superiority of Christianity to Judaism will not appear strange to any who reflect that angels were employed in some way or other in the giving of the law, and that this was one of the circumstances in which Christianity must have appeared to a Jew to have a disadvantage in comparison with the system which it professed to supersede, take the place of. Of the manner in which the angels were employed in the giving of the law, we have no particular account, but the fact seems plain enough stated in both the Old and the New Testament. These angels are described as excelling in strength. Their employment in giving of the law stamps a dignity and importance on that economy. The, the Christian revelation had not been introduced with the same public display of angelic ministration, but it was not on this account to be considered inferior to the Mosaic, for its author, that is Christ, in setting down as the appointed heir of all things on the right hand of the majesty in the heavens had been made so much better than the angels as he that by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So the angels of God, they're created by God, they're magnificent beings uh, who clearly had some part in the conveying of the law or the mediating of the law. Christ is superior to angels. Okay. Well, then question number three, in what sense or in what way is he better than them? And again, I would, for, I would affirm in two different ways. Number one, his exalted status. His exalted status. And I think this is really the fundamental import of the text. That's why I've called it his official superiority excuse me, to angels. It's, uh, his exalted status to the right hand of the majesty, which was not true of angels. Uh, as Ellingworth wrote, the son is greater or better than angels because God has given him a higher status than theirs. And this, uh, this term better, as you're probably aware, um, is really a key word in Hebrews. It occurs, uh, R.C.H. Lenski indicated, it occurs 13 times in Hebrews. Um, together with other comparatives, it rings through Hebrews as a keynote. None of the excellence of theirs, that is, of angels, none of the excellence of theirs is denied. But their very excellence shows how much better Christ is. 
Um, and F.F. F. Bruce puts it like this, the comparative adjective better is used 13 times in Hebrews to contrast Christ and his new order with what went before him. To contrast Christ and his new order with what went before him. Let me just kind of give you a sense of this. In Hebrews 7.19, it says, On the other hand, there is a bringing out, excuse me, a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Chapter 7, verse 22, So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Uh, chapter 8 and verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So a better hope, a better covenant, Better promises in chapter 9, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In chapter 10, verse 34, you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Verse 16 of chapter 11, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Verse 35 of chapter 11, women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection uh, verse 40 of chapter 11 because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us they should not be made perfect then verse 24 of chapter 12 and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel and then of course it occurs in our text as well so the point here is that Christ is superior or better than angels in spite of, of their magnificence because of his exalted status to the right hand of the majesty on high and again let me offer some comments by John Brown he is also officially superior to the angels in being set down as the proprietor and governor of all things on the right hand of the majesty on high, in consequence of his having purged our sins by himself, he's been made much better than the angels. To be made better than the angels is to be raised to a higher state of dignity than the angels. When the only begotten of God became flesh and dwelt among men, he was for a little while made lower than the angels, but when, having finished the work which the Father had given him to do, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he was raised to a dignity far superior than that of an angel. However exalted is their station, they are all servants. He reigns along with God, having all power in heaven and earth. So he's better than angels because he's exalted to a higher status than, than they, they are. That's the fundamental point. Secondly, I would offer he's better because... True salvation is only found in him. He's better than angels because true salvation is only found in him. He's the only way of, of being saved. He's the only means of salvation. She shall bring forth the Son. I shall call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Neither is there salvation in any other except in, in Christ. So Jesus saves and Jesus alone saves. Notice verse 14 of chapter 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? A reference to angels. And as one commentator put it, the exposition of 2, 5 through 18 below will make clear what has already been anticipated in these opening verses. Through his incarnation, death, and exaltation, the eternal Son became the fully adequate Savior of his people. The angels have no such salvific function. Thus, he who was superior to them as the eternal Son became superior to them in a new way at the exaltation by procuring human salvation. So in the first place, 
here the, the official superiority of Christ to angels. Then in the second place, I want you to think with me about his essential superiority to angels. And now we're thinking of the rest of the verse. As he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Inherits is the idea of to acquire. It can just simply mean to come into possession. And the term excellent emphasizes um, unlike in nature or quality or degree. So what this does, that what the second part of the verse confirms really legitimate, the legitimacy of him receiving this status, this dignity that is greater than angels. And it does so by emphasizing not so much uh, what he did, but who he was or what he was intrinsically. So it's a move from his status to the inherent excellency of the person of Christ. I want to expand our thinking here just by three thoughts under this uh, second heading. First of all, I would have you note that the meaning of the names that are ascribed to Christ reveal his true character. The, the names ascribed to the person of Christ, they reveal his true character. And again, this is a bit of a long quote from John Brown, but he says the name of angels is not their dignity, but their designation, spirits. The name of Christ here is not his official dignity, but his proper designation, the Son of God. The next verse makes clear that the name here is referring to as the Son of God. Fully to understand the force of the expression, however, it's necessary to remark that in the Hebrew language, by a reference to which much of the phraseology of the New Testament is to be explained, names are, are usually significant. And that under the Old Testament, names were often given by God to describe the leading circumstances in the character or fortunes of individuals. And, and hence, for a person to have a particular name given him, it's often equal to his being what that name expresses. For example, he writes, when Isaiah says of the Messiah, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, he plainly means he shall be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting God, the Prince of Peace. The meaning then of the Apostle in the passage before us, according to this principle of interpretation, is the descriptive designation given to Christ Jesus, when contrasted with that given to angels, marks him as belonging to a higher order of being. Their name is created spirits. His name is the only begotten Son. So it makes the point that the author of the Christian revelation is essentially superior to the angels. And this necessarily implies divine perfection on the part of his son. So the names ascribed to the person of Christ, they reveal his true nature and his true character. In Revelation chapter 19, he's called faithful and true because he is faithful and true. He's called king of kings and lord of lords because he is king of kings and lord of lords. The next verse indicates him that he is the son or his son. And I think John Murray's words on the significance of this designation in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3 are equally applicable here. He wrote, for these reasons, we conclude that Jesus is here identified by that title which expresses his eternal relation to the Father. And that when the subject matter of the gospel is defined as that which pertains to the eternal Son of God, the apostle at the threshold of the epistle is commending the gospel by showing that it is concerned with him who has no lower station than that of equality with the Father. The subject matter of the gospel is the person who is on the highest plane of reality. So there's a unity of being between the Father and the Son. Well, secondly, the description of sonship does not, make, does not mean that God made him his son, but it simply brings that reality into prominence. Um, 
The description of sonship that we find in the next verse does not mean that God made him his son at this particular point in time. It just brings that reality into promise. He was always the eternal, pure, holy son of God. For those of you that are football fans, and for those of you that are not, um, every December there's an award in college football called the Heisman Trophy. And I was reading, it's supposed to be presented to the most outstanding football player in the country. And just for the sake of argument, let's just say that, that, that the gentleman that receives it in December, he actually is the most outstanding football player in the country. Okay? Um, he didn't become the most outstanding football player in the country when he received the trophy. Uh, he, he already was that, but, but it brings a, a certain prominence and notoriety to it. Now other people read about it, and they realize that, that never even heard his name before. And the idea here is when, when our Lord is exalted to the place of the right hand of God, he doesn't become the Son of God. It just becomes more prominent. He's exalted to this place of prominence and notoriety. <clears throat> just kind of a recap here. The superiority of Christ over angels is brought out by in two closely related ways. Number one, his official superiority is by virtue of his exaltation to the right hand of the majesty on high, and his essential superiority. Um, the name draws our attention to the eternal relationship he has with the, with the Father in the intrinsic excellency. He shares the same nature of the as the Father. Now, to close, I want to simply um, ask a, a question which is this, um, why does the author introduce this reality here and develop it at length in verses 5 through 14? I know we've talked about that to some extent, but why is that the author of Hebrews, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whoever that author is, why does the author introduce this reality here and develop it in verses 5 through 14? What's the motivation? I think there's a twofold answer. One, and this is kind of in the, so this is in the flow of thought, I believe... It's to heighten their or our appreciation for the glory of the salvation that is found in Christ. It's to heighten our appreciation for the glory of the salvation that is found in Christ and thereby fortify our souls against the deadly spiritual malady of neglecting so great a salvation. So I think in the flow of thought, the motivation for emphasizing the superiority of Christ over angels is to heighten our appreciation for the kind of salvation that is found in Christ and prevent against this this deadly spiritual malady of neglecting so great a salvation. As one author put it, he must continually be pressing upon his hearers the eminent majesty of the Son in order to secure their proper attention to the great salvation effected and revealed in his fulfilled sonship. You'll notice um, verse 1 of chapter 2 begins with, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect, neglect so great a salvation? So for what reason? That's because of the superiority of Christ over, over angels. For that reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. And the reason is so that we don't drift away. This is a warning against what's called apostasy. As one writer put it, um, the writer warns them, in fact, against apostasy of turning from Christ and the gospel to return to a religion which cannot save them. Now, in this particular letter, um, because of the reality of persecution, there's repetitive warning of these believers not to draw back. Don't draw back to perdition. 
Don't harden your hearts. Don't neglect so great a salvation. The three thoughts I would, I would leave you in this connection. Number one, this idea of drawing back or neglecting so great a salvation, it's always a concern for all believers. Notice here the author includes himself in chapter 2 and verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He includes himself in in this group. And then secondly, um, the apostasy presented here, it happens gradually. Notice he says, lest we drift away. That's to disbelieve gradually or slowly. It's conceived of as being carried along due to a current of water. So it's not like a speedboat taking off. It's like a a slow-moving river, and the kayak just comes by very slowly. It drifts away. That's the idea. Persecution, by the way, that's not the only current by which people drift away from the Lord. It can be the worries of the world. It can be the desire for other things. It can be the allurements of the world. It can be 101 forms of idolatry, which displace a true deep affection for the being of Christ. <clears throat> I, I find this, this concept of drifting away compelling, I think. I think it's because of what I do. And over the years, insofar as I could tell, I've, I've seen one person after another, I'm not talking about leaving the church, but they've done exactly what this text is saying. They, they just drift away from the faith. And we might think, well, that's no big deal. According to the book of Hebrews, it's an infinite tragedy. It is an infinite tragedy because it says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the preventative here, according to chapter 1, verses 5 through 14 or so, it's to load your soul with the superiority of the being of Christ over angels. It's to fill your soul with truth about the glory and excellency of the person of Christ or... As John Owen puts it, labor to possess the mind with the beauty and excellency of spiritual things, that so they may be presented lovely and desirable to the soul. Let then the soul labor to acquaint itself with the spiritual beauty of obedience, of communion with God, and of all duties of immediate approach to him, that it may be filled with delight in them. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for your word. I pray you would use what we have considered this morning and and cause us to be those who um, embrace the means that you have established to prevent drifting away. We pray that you would apply these words to our own soul. Again, I would pray if there's anyone here that has not gloried in Christ as the eternal Savior of their soul, you would open their hearts and and show them that he is a a perfect, glorious, eternal redeemer of any who would acknowledge the reality of their own sin, turn from it, and embrace him as the eternal savior of their soul. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.